0: Let's take our Bibles this morning and look first at Proverbs and then at Matthew, Proverbs 16. So if you want to turn to Proverbs and then put your finger there and go back to Matthew 23 and put your finger there. Let's stand as we read the word of God today. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would come upon us today. Quiet the words and voices of the weak that we might hear only yours. Open our eyes to what these words say and mean, that they would penetrate our hearts and that we would live in accord with them. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So first from Proverbs chapter 16, verses 18 and 19. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It is better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. And now Matthew 23, verses 5 through 12. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. And they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men, Rabbi. But do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders for one is your leader that is Christ but the greatest among you shall be your servant and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted this is God's inspired word for us today so please be seated humility Ah. I'm the most humble person there is. I want to tell you that right off. Okay, uh, That's a that's bad start. That's a bad start. C.S. Lewis said, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Mm. St. Augustine said, It was pride that changed angels into devils. It is humility that makes men as angels. Matthew Henry said, it is common for those that are farthest from God to boast themselves most of their being near to the church. Edward Irving, a Scottish pastor in the 1800s, said, I perceive two things in Scotland of the most fearful omen, ignorance of theological truth and a readiness to pride themselves in and boast of it. And then Thomas Merton, pride makes us artificial. Humility makes us real. We have in the passage in Matthew in particular, this is a continuation of of the discussion and the study that we did a a few weeks ago on superficial holiness and the dangers that are there where you just do it for show and and such as we see as we uh, go on through that passage we'll understand this was commonly demonstrated in the lives of the Pharisees. They liked to put on acts of righteousness so everybody could see it. So last time we, we kind of looked at the negative aspects of that. We're going to look at the positive aspects of humility, and, and which is kind of the contrary to what they were doing. The Pharisees were clearly hypocritical in what they did. So true holiness is always characterized by at least two things at least you know we can make a big long list but for today two things obedience and humility obedience and humility it's an attitude that is at the very center of the Christian life so biblically speaking you should never have to tell or never pronounce like I did how humble you are or how spiritual you are others should be able to recognize that in the quality of your life They should see the maturity of your faith in how you treat others, how you speak to them, how you go out of your way to think of them before yourself. See, when it comes to kingdom building, you're either building your kingdom or you're building God's kingdom. And if we see in the uh, end of our passage in Matthew, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, whoever humbles himself shall be exalted, I would rather humble myself rather than have God come in and humble me because it says very clearly, you shall be humbled. Well, this is not the first time in Matthew 23 that Jesus has warned about hypocrisy and highlighted the lives of the Pharisees. Go back several chapters to Matthew chapter 5. And this is where he really begins this in the first part of Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount, and he goes through a list of things. And here are qualities that we are to pursue, and here are the outcomes of that when we live out those qualities. Um, these, uh, there are a couple here that, that apply to us in particular in humility today. And then there are promises that are not attached to those if you live this way this is what happens okay this is what you can expect so let's look at Matthew chapter 5 uh, verse three, three, four, five, 3 4 5 and 6 blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the earth blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied so we find these blessings promised upon those whose quality of life and characteristics are such. These and then the accompany blessings. So let's look at a couple of these. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well the word poor is, is, uh, is uh, way more than just poor. Okay. If you're poor in this country you have a pretty high standard of living in most of the rest of the world. This word means that. You are so poor you have no resources, you have no skills, you have no abilities, you have to beg, you have no, no, you have nothing, okay, nothing. You may have the clothes on your back, but you cannot expect your next meal out of your own hand. You cannot expect anything to come to you out of your own hand. It must come to you from outside of yourself. That is what this word means, poor. Poor. They are utterly bankrupt, utterly without support, and the kingdom belongs to this type of person. Oh, okay, what's that mean, Rand? Does that mean I have to sell everything? Does that mean I gotta go live on the street? No, we're talking really about our spiritual bankruptcy. Those who admit their spiritual bankruptcy, those who understand and realize that they cannot enter the kingdom on their own, that's the porn spirit. Right? Remember Luke chapter 18, you've got the Pharisee over here, you've got the tax collector over here, and the Pharisee lifts his eyes and, and, you know, maybe his hands and says, oh Lord, I'm so grateful that I'm not like that guy over there. I tithe and I give and I pray and the tax collector does what? He doesn't even lift his eyes towards heaven. Okay, he is so poor in spirit, so spiritually, I understand his spiritual bankruptcy, that he keeps his eyes down and says, Lord, forgive me for I'm a sinner. He doesn't look up to the Lord and, and say, Lord, forgive me. No, he can't even raise his eyes to the heavens. The kingdom does not belong to those who are counting on their baptism. It doesn't belong to those who are counting on their godly other family members who might be in their, in their immediate circle. It doesn't belong to those who years ago made a decision for Christ and then gave it, no, not a second thought. It does not belong to those who take, to take pride in conformity to traditions and to actions and things like that. The only ones who can claim assurance are those who have humbly cast themselves upon God's mercy. I am so poor, I am so destitute of spiritual things that I have what? Nothing in my hand I bring only to the cross of Christ I cling so that's what it means that's what it means to be poor in spirit you get the kingdom if you're poor in spirit so blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted the spiritually bankrupt mourn over their sin it, it, it's, it's interesting to say well nothing in my hand I bring only to the cross I cling I got one thing I bring to the cross and what's that it's my sin, because <laughs> I've got lots of it. In fact, my hands are so full of it, I've got no, no room for righteousness or grace. I have to come to the cross. And this is not mourning like they did in, in, in the New Testament or the Old Testament, where they would, would sit in sackcloth and ashes and tear their clothes and make a big show of mourning. It's not that type of mourning. It's not even the type of mourning where it would be, um, well, jeez, you know, my plans didn't work out. I, 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 they didn't come to fruition, so I'm, I'm, I'm mourning over that. And it's not the type of mourning even at the passing of a loved one or something like that or something awful has happened, and, and I'm mourning over that. That's not this type of mourning. Only those who are seeking after the Lord, only those who belong to the Lord can mourn in this fashion. What kind of fashion is that? Turn to Second Corinthians chapter 7. This is a morning that comes when your heart has been changed. You are spiritually bankrupt, so you mourn over your sin. You understand the depths of your sin because your eyes have been opened to it. So Paul is writing here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 to, to the church at Corinth, and they know a lot about sin, and he's addressed that off and on in various ways in first in and, and so far in 2 Corinthians. And we come to... Chapter 7, verse 10. And we see an example of this mourning and this sorrow here. Verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. There are two types of sorrows here. Okay? One is a godly sorrow that moves you towards repentance. The other is a worldly sorrow that doesn't get you anywhere. In verse 11, for behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Okay? So there is a repentance, there is a godly sorrow that has gone on in the lives of the people that Paul is writing to here. And he sees what this godly sorrow has produced. Vindication indignation fear longing zeal all of these things this is what the godly sorrow produces and it's not back to Matthew chapter 5 and it's not a one-time issue okay this is not uh, well I felt godly sorrow for my sin so once that has happened I'm good the rest of my life right this is, this is one of those words that has the particular Greek ending on it that means it continues on. There is no end to the action. You are to, have a, you are to mourn and to have this godly sorrow all of your life as a believer. Remember what Paul said. He said in, in, in Romans, he said, "...who will deliver me from this body of death?" He was not talking about the flesh. He was talking about the sin that remained in his life. He wanted to get rid of the effects of that sin because it plagued him. Remember, he said, why do I do what I know I shouldn't do? And why don't I do what I know I should do? Who will deliver me from this body of death? He said, I want to get rid of this. I'm mourning over this sin. I'm mourning that it, it, it clings to me and holds on to me. Now, this, this is not self-pity. Oh, poor Randy, he's dealing with sin. Okay, this is a hatred of sin it, it, it clings to me and I want to be like Christ but I got this weight upon me so we mourn over that there are nine words in the Greek that are used for sorrow this word here for mourning is the deepest it it, it it's the gut-wrenching sorrow okay if we put it in in a vernacular it just rips your heart out that's the way we are to feel If we are poor in spirit, if we understand that we bring nothing to the cross except our sin, we will mourn over that sin. We will be sorrowful for that. All right. Back to Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, gentle, this is mild or soft. In humans, it is uh, sometimes translated, blessed are the meek. Okay, now don't mistake meekness for weakness. This is not what it means. There is no connotation of weakness in this word gentleness. The word carries no connotation of cowardice, no connotation of a lack of conviction. When we lived in Wilmington, we had a friend who had uh, several acres and he he would grow vegetables there and he backed up to a farm. And every year... um, the, at the Azalea Festival, the Budweiser Clydesdales would come, okay, and they would be housed in the stable behind this guy's property. So we would get a chance to go, and we'd jump over the fence, and we'd go into the stables and talk to the Clydesdales. Now, how many of you have ever been up close with a Clydesdale? Anybody? You know, first thing is this. Okay, because they're big horses. Now, now if you're a horse person, you understand you can come up to a horse and, and, and you know, if you have food, uh, usually the horses out in the field will come to you. Clydesdales are huge. And if you run your hand over a Clydesdale's, I mean, it, it's as hard as a rock. But you walk right up to a Clydesdale because it's gentle. Okay, it is strong, but it is gentle. That's what this word means. It means power under control. That's what gentleness means power under control. It's a virtue that draws courage and strength from God. It's not centered on our own resources, it is centered on the resources that God provides for us. Now, verse 6 Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. All these deal with, all these tie in with humility. This flows from the previous three, but this is a little bit more positive. There's a hunger that comes from dying to self. Let me read a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, the Welsh pastor. "'It is the logical conclusion to which they come, "'and it is something for which we should all be profoundly thankful to God. "'I do not know any better test that anyone can apply to himself "'in this whole matter of the Christian life than this verse.'" If this verse is a blessed statement to you, you can be certain you are a Christian. If it is not, then you better examine the foundations of your faith. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In our culture, we have the potential, gee, just to be saturated with the things of Christ, right? Christian radio, internet television, you can, you can get your, your iPhone or whatever and put your earbuds in and just be in your own Christian world almost 24-7. Now we also have the opportunity to be saturated with everything non-Christian as well. So how is it that in, in this culture we, can, we are supposed to hunger and thirst for righteousness? When we were in the DR uh, you had to drink. And he had to drink a lot, and we got good schooling from our doctors who said these are the signs of dehydration: if you forget your name, if you don't know what people are saying when they speak to you, if you start to wander around aimlessly, you might be dehydrated. Okay, so drink. So this is a test if, to see if you hunger and thirst, and and it gives us a kind of a maybe a, a quality of what I'm talking about. For the next two days, don't drink anything. Okay, leave here, don't drink anything for the next two days. I want you to get to the point where you're wandering around the house, you don't know your name, you're thinking your lips are cracked, okay, you've stopped sweating, you're pale and all white, and then go stand next to somebody who has a big glass of water and watch them drink it. That's hunger and thirst. Okay, that's what it means here. Where you're the only you are so you want that so badly that, that you just you're just ready to beat the stuffing out of the person to grab their water because it, you just, your body cries out for it. To hunger and thirst for what? For righteousness. And there's only one righteousness here, and that's the righteousness of God. That is the measure of our lives. Do we hunger and thirst? There they are. They're standing right. The righteousness of God is right there next to you. Can, do you just want to? Beat the person up so you can get the righteousness of God. That's how badly we have to want it. That's how badly we have to want the righteousness of God. And it's unconditional. Okay This, this, is, the, this is the part that we don't like. We, we, we might think, oh, yes, I want the righteousness of God, and I'm going to hunger and thirst for it. But do you really want the righteousness of God? Because that righteousness comes in an unconditional fashion. The Lord gives it. He doesn't consult you and say, well, what do you want? What part of my righteousness do you want? How much of it do you want? In what form do you want? If you are to hunger for the righteousness of God, you get it in the way that he gives it to us. And there are ways that he gives it to us that we don't particularly like. Okay, Spiritual hunger needs to be Unconditional will accept God's righteousness in whatever form it comes and will obey that righteousness in whatever it calls us to do. The spiritually hungry want Christ. They want his kingdom, even if it means the sacrifice of the things of ease or of this world or the things that we think are important. That's spiritual hunger. Now, humility, I hate to say this, must sometimes be forced upon us. Turn over to 2 Corinthians again, chapter 12. Remember in Matthew it says very clearly, those who exalt themselves shall be humbled, those who humble themselves shall be exalted. But sometimes the Lord works in a a sense in a proactive way to keep us humble lest we slide into pride on our own. and that's what has happened here in Paul's life in 2 Corinthians 12. and, and it, the, re- the reason for this is because there's enough sinfulness that remains in the believer. okay There's this battle that goes on. And and there's this sin that remains. It doesn't reign in our life, but it remains in our life. So sometimes the Lord brings things into our lives to humble us specifically. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 1. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. This is Paul. Paul's talking about himself here. The third heaven is paradise. It is the abode of God. Okay? And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man will I boast. But on my own behalf I will not boast except in regard to my weakness. For if I do wish to boast, I shall... I shall not be foolish, for I shall be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so that no one may credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Now, just as an aside, this happened somewhere between Acts 9 and Acts, the end of Acts 13, right in that, that window of Paul's life. And then there are other events such as this in Acts 9, Acts 16, Acts 27, Galatians 1, Galatians 2, Ephesians 2, that are similar to this, where Paul would really have a cause to boast. Yeah, I had another vision from God yesterday. What? You didn't get one? That's too bad. <laughs> okay, or you know, or, or how many is that free? Oh, let me think. I had this one. I had that one. I, I, I was taken up to paradise. Did I tell you about that? Because you see how easily this could build up as a pride thing in Paul's life. All these visions, I mean, the Lord is speaking directly to God. He's showing him these things. Now, verse 7. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, Okay, you shall be humbled. If you humble yourself, you shall be exalted. And Paul says, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Now, Anybody who's had roses, you know what it's like to get a thorn. Or if you have a locust tree and you get a locust thorn, I mean, those are kind of nasty. That's not what this really means. It says thorn, but it really means more uh, along the lines of a, a stake, Not one that you grill, but one that you would sharpen. Okay, not just a thorn that pierces your thumb, but a stake that would pierce your skin. Okay, a thorn is kind of nagging. A stake that pierces your skin, it hurts. It hurts all the time. It bothers you all the time. And that's what Paul is talking about here. There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. What has happened in your life that perhaps the Lord has brought to keep you from exalting yourself? when you start to feel good about you know what I've done you know what I've accomplished you know that's a danger time because if you exalt yourself you shall be humbled and Paul here who had every reason to 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 think of himself highly the Lord said on a, like a preemptive basis I'm going to make sure that you are humbled and for this reason. Now, what was it? Well, it was obviously a, measure, a messenger of Satan that afflicted Paul. It might have been the Judaizers that followed him from town to town. It might have been uh, Paul, Paul thought that maybe, uh, or others have thought maybe it was his eyesight. He doesn't elaborate here other than a messenger of Satan. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And the Lord said, No. Not only did he say, no, I'm going to leave it with you, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell within me. we really want to be humbled we really want to go to the Lord on our knees and say Lord keep me humble do you know what that might entail we know that it entails that his power is perfected in us and so that just runs so counter to what we think uh, you know in our society we we, we want to succeed and, and do well and 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 you know we we want to be on top and there's nothing wrong with that if your attitude is right But realize the Lord will do things in our lives that he deems appropriate. And if he has to come upon Randy or or anybody and say, I'm going to keep you humble for this reason until you understand that you can't boast in anything but your weakness because then you're made strong. All right, let's go back to Matthew 23. That was the introduction. I hope you're ready for. for <laughs> Jesus is speaking to a pretty religious people. okay? These aren't secular people. They, the religion is part of all that they do, all of their culture. They're committed people, but the spiritual leaders of Israel, just remember, they just modeled a, an external type of religion and here are some examples of what they were doing let's look at verse 5 of 23 but they do all their deeds he's talking about the pharisees all their deeds to be noticed by men for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassel of their garments phylacteries this is an old phylacteries and tassels come from the old testament it was a little box that sometimes they wore on their forehead or their left arm and they would put bible verses in them um um, One in particular, which escapes me. Uh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, And then, so so people would see that that was an evidence of their faith. So if I want people to think that I'm holier, if I want people to think that I really got my spiritual life together, I'm going to make a bigger phylactery, okay? And I'm going to make longer tassels. I'm going to go to the tailor, and I'm going to say, well, I know that the average tassel is this long, but I want a tassel that's this long. Okay, And so when I walk through the town, they see that on my head and they see it on my arm. And they look at that and go, man, look how big that phylactery is. Look how long his tassel is. That guy must be holy. That guy must be serious about his faith. And it draws attention to them. Okay, They were very prideful in that way. They were not humble. It goes on to say, verse 6, they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues let's say we have a banquet we're over the cooper house and there's the head table and um, you know the event starts at seven o'clock and the place is packed and there's one seat that's not there and that's the seat for the guest of honor okay there's no guest of honor there yet the seat's empty and at 703 the guest of honor shows up so you know, he's the guest of honor, so I'm obligated to get up in the middle of the proceedings and walk to the door and escort the guest of honor to his seat. This is what these guys were doing. They would show up at events late so that they would be escorted up in front of everybody. You know, it would be like, um, uh, you know, it's it's quarter to 11 and, and we're singing the first hymn and, and doing everything and the door opens and there I stand, okay. And all the elders have to get up from their seats and go over and escort me down front, okay, right here to this seat. Because this is the seat of honor. And I sit down, and I sit down so humbly that that I'm so thankful. That's what they were doing. There's no humility there. That's all about pride. It's all about me, okay? It's all about me. And Jesus is warning us that you have to be humble. You have to be humble. Verse eight and nine. Do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Now, he doesn't. He's not against titles, but he's against the heart that focuses on that title or desires that title. Do not call anyone on your earth father, for one is your father who is in heaven. Now, he's making this command, and and what he's saying here. I don't want to decide that. Um, at, its, at its root, it is a hard attitude. Do I want to be called by title as a teacher? Do, do you as an elder within this church want to be known as, yes, I'm an elder at Central Presbyterian, okay? Because if you're going to lead, what do you have to do? You have to serve, Okay. Now, um, you don't call me Your Holiness or Your Excellency. You just call me Randy. Sometimes I get the preacher or the pastor Randy. And you know if Lisa calls you and says, Dr. Jenkins wants to see you in his office, you're in big trouble. Okay? Because that's the only time you get that. Okay? But we can't, we don't seek to elevate, to be elevated as teachers, as elders, nor do we want people to elevate us. Remember in the Reformed tradition, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. I'm no closer to God than any other believer, okay? There are different gifts that I have that others don't have, but that doesn't make me higher in a spiritual uh, hierarchy. The ground before the cross is not level because some of us are taller, but, you know, once we stand there, we're all the same before the Lord in Christ. Okay? So that's what he calls us. The, the, the title is not the point. The attitude of the heart. Do you seek an exalted title? Do you seek a position of authority? Do you want to elevate somebody up? Do you know what happens when you put somebody on a pedestal? They're going to fall sooner or later. Sooner or later, they will fall. So Jesus quotes or closes all this. Eleven and twelve. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. You want to be great in the kingdom? Then serve. Don't tell anybody you're servant. Just go and do it. Demonstrate your spiritual authority, uh, spiritual maturity, through service, through, through the proclamation of the gospel. Because whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. The way up is to go down. Your knees. Mm, That just doesn't sit well in most cultures. The way to true satisfaction is to abandon the quest to be honored by men and seek the power that's available to us in the Lord. J.C. Ryle said, He that would be great in the eyes of Christ must not pain so much to rule as to serve. Let's pray. Here we are, Lord. We come with our own baggage. Each of us is is prideful about some aspect of our lives, some aspect of maybe what you have done in our lives, what we have accomplished. Those things can be recognized, and we can still have an attitude of humility in our hearts. We can still understand where the true power lies, that it comes from you, that it is more important to do right and to be right in your eyes than it is to be recognized by those around us. So you say, Don't let your right hand know what you're doing. So the left hand is doing sometimes. Are we more concerned about your glory or our own? Lord, you, you call us to humility. But we can't say that we're humble. We can only demonstrate it and let others point to it. So, Lord, in all things, help us to understand that it's more important that they recognize you than it is that they recognize us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.